and welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly On Leadership podcast. My name is Scott Miller. I serve as your host and interviewer each week. I'm also the author of the book series Master Mentors, published by HarperCollins, Master Mentors Volume 1, and now Master Mentors Volume 2, out, available for purchase both on audio, video, digital, and print, where each year I produce a new volume where I highlight 30 guests from Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast and a single transformational insight that they've shared on the podcast, the books are easy, breezy, fast reads. I liken them to the new chicken soup for the soul. Would be honored if you picked up a copy of Volume 1 or Volume 2 of Master Mentors on my way to 10 volumes in the series, writing Master Mentors Volume 3 this year. Now, today our guest is someone who I've had the privilege of interviewing in a previous role. You may be aware that several years ago I hosted a radio program every Saturday morning on iHeartRadio called Great Life, Great Career with Scott Miller. And today's guest was gracious enough to join me then. He's back today. His name is Gary Chapman. He has written the seminal, incomparable book called The Five Love Languages, The Secret to Love That Last. Dr. Gary Chapman, welcome to On Leadership. Well, thank you, Scott. It's good to be with you again. Dr. Chapman, honored you're here. You're going to do so much great investing into relationships today, although our podcast typically is about life in the professional world. We know that everyone wants their employees and colleagues to have harmony in their home so they can bring that same harmony into the workplace. And a great marriage, great relationships makes for great workplace cultures as well. So today we're going to talk about the, the really, again, incomparable impact that your book, The Five Love Languages, has had on relationships around the world. The book has sold 20 million copies. It is translated into 50 languages around the world. I think it's your book now in its 30th year. How many years since the book's been published? Yeah, this is the 30th anniversary. Congratulations, and you came to On Leadership to celebrate that. Thank you, sir, for making our podcast such. You know, Gary, um, by, by study in nature, you were originally a cultural anthropologist and an expert on linguistics. You are a family and marriage counselor. If I'm not mistaken, these languages came out of a lot of the learnings you had after literally thousands of couple therapy engagements. Talk a little bit about the journey you had as a couples therapist and the things you kept hearing over and over again and how those congealed to become the five love languages. Yeah, what happened, Scott? You're exactly right. Uh, I remember over 30 years ago, uh, the first time it dawned on me that what makes one person feel loved doesn't make another person feel loved. A couple came in. I didn't know them. They sat down and uh, after the wife said a few words, she said, Dr. Chapman, the real problem is I don't feel any love coming from him. We're like roommates living in the same house. He does his thing. I do my thing. There's nothing going on between us. And she said, I feel so empty inside. And I don't know how long I can go on like this. Well, I looked at her husband and he said, I don't understand her. I do everything I can to show her that I love her. And she sits there and tells you what she's been telling me. She doesn't feel love. And he said, I don't know what else to do. I said, well, what do you do to share your love with her? He said, well, I get home from work before she does. So I start the evening meal. Some nights I have it ready when she gets home. If not, she'll help me. Then after dinner, I wash the dishes. Thursday night, I vacuum the floors. Saturday, I wash the car. I mow the grass. I help her with the laundry, and he went on. I was beginning to wonder, Scott, what does this woman do? <laughs> it sounded to me like he was doing everything. 
And he said, I do all of that. And she says she doesn't feel love. I look back at her and she started crying. And she said, Dr. Chapman, he's right. He's a hardworking man, but we don't ever talk. We haven't talked in 20 years. She said, he's always busy washing, the, washing clothes, mowing grass, and <laughs> always doing something. <laughs> and that's when it dawned on me. You know, a husband can be sincere. A wife can be sincere, and they still miss each other emotionally. So I kept hearing that similar stories over and over again. And what I did eventually was to sit down and read several years of notes that I made when I was counseling and ask myself the question, when someone said, I feel like my spouse doesn't love me, what did they want? What were they complaining about? And their answers fell into five categories. And I later called them the five love languages. And I started using it in my counseling. You know, if you want her to feel love, you've got to learn to speak her love language. If you want him to feel love, you've got to learn to speak his love language. And I would help couples discover their love language, challenge them to go home and try it. And sometimes, Scott, in three weeks, they would come back and say, Gary, this is making a huge difference. I mean, the climate's changing in our relationship now. And probably it was five years later when I thought if I could put this concept in a book, write it in the language of the common person, maybe I could help a lot of couples that I would not have time to see in my office. Of course, little did I know what you said earlier, it's now sold over 20 million copies, been translated in over 50 languages around the world. So that's where it came from, out of my counseling. Gary, I think it's not uh, an embellishment to say the book is probably the most practical relationship book written in the last 30 years, transformed millions of people's relationships. It's a new language, it's a language. You go to dinner with other couples and if you bring up the five love languages, the entire dinner conversation at the restaurant turns into, well, my love language and her love language. And then you always have a couple that knows nothing about it and then they get sucked in and they start to read the book, which is why your book has done so well. In a few minutes, we'll talk about those love languages. But first I want you to talk about this, I think, remarkable concept of the difference between what you call real love and in love. And I think yep. you mentioned in your research that, you know, in love is something most of us experience early on in our marriages. Usually happens around two years or so, but it's different than real love. Spend a few minutes talking about those concepts. Yeah, I think the in love experience begins with what I call an emotional thrill or an emotional tingle. You meet someone and there's something about the way they look, the way they talk, and the way they emote that just stirs something inside of you that makes you want to spend time with them. And every time you get together, it gets stronger and stronger. And literally, it becomes an obsession, an emotional obsession with the other person. You can't get them off your mind. You go to bed thinking about them. You wake up thinking about them. All day long, you think about them. And uh, in, in your mind, they are the most wonderful person you've ever met. Now, your mother, if she knows them, will see their flaws, okay? <laughs> <laughs> she will say, honey, have you considered? Uh, they haven't had a steady job in three years. I mean, you know, <laughs> she'll bring it up. But in your mind, they're absolutely incredibly wonderful. But what no one told me, Scott, and I wish I'd known this before I got married, the average lifespan of that obsession is two years, some a little longer, some a little less, but average two years, and we come down off the high. Now, 
if I had known that was going to happen, I think I would have been better prepared for it. But I didn't know that. I mean, I was always told, if you got the real thing, it's going to last forever. Well, I came down off the high. My wife and I had disagreements, as all couples do. We didn't know how to solve them because when you're in love, you don't think you'll have any conflicts. So we ended up arguing with each other. And before long, not only had I lost the high euphoric feelings, now I had negative feelings toward her. And if I had known that was going to happen, and if I'd prepared a little more on conflict resolution, I would have saved myself some struggles in the early years of our marriage. And uh, many couples are not aware uh, of what I just shared. So that's one kind of love. It's an in-love thing. Uh, I usually say there's really three kinds of love, at least that I deal with. That's the in-love experience. And then there's love as an attitude, a fixed way of thinking. And every day we choose our attitude. We don't choose our emotions. We choose our attitude. And if we have the attitude in a marriage, I'm, I'm here to enrich your life. If I can just find out how I'm going, I want to enrich your life. That's a way of thinking and it will affect our behavior. But then the third way is love as an emotional need. And that's what I'm addressing in the five love languages. Almost everyone agrees that one of our deepest emotional needs as humans is the need to feel loved by the significant people in your life. And if you're married, the person you would most like to love you is your spouse. If you feel loved by your spouse, life is beautiful. But if what I call the love tank is empty and you feel like they don't love me, they wish they weren't married to me, life begins to look pretty dark. And just as much of the misbehavior of children grows out of an empty love tank, much of the misbehavior of adults grows out of an empty love tank. So it's really, really important that we learn how to meet each other's need for love. And when we do, then when that need is met, we can solve conflicts easier and everything else that comes along in life. So it's a hugely important part of a successful marriage. Gary, of the many profound concepts in the book, The Five Love Languages, I found two. One, of course, is the five languages that we'll talk in depth in each of those today. But the other is not just focused on the way you choose to receive love, but the way that your partner or spouse chooses to receive love. Because oftentimes we give love how we want to receive it, like we lead people, we treat people how we want to be treated when in fact that's the golden rule, you'd argue the platinum rule is treat others how they want to be treated. And it's a very, it's a very important leadership discussion right now. You identify the five love languages as words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, and physical touch. And as those who are listening today, either as a refresher, because they perhaps listened to your radio program or seen you speak or read the book, or they're hearing it for the first time, I want each of you watching and listening today to think about what perhaps is the language in which you prefer to receive love? And just as importantly, what is that of your spouse or partner? And what is their love language to ensure that you're not giving them love the same way you want to receive love, unless, of course, that is their love language? You can tell I'm a disciple of this book, Mr. Chapman. Uh, talk first about words of affirmation. Simply using words to affirm things that you admire in them. It can be as simple as, you look nice in that outfit. I really appreciate what you did. You know one of the things I like about you? 
is simply looking for things that you can genuinely affirm. Now, Scott, I did have a lady once who said to me when she heard this, she said, I, I, I know it would be good if I could give him positive words. She said, but to be honest with you, I can't think of anything good to say about the man. Wow. <laughs> and I said, does he ever take a shower? And she said, well, yes. I said, how often? She said, well, every day. I said, if I were you, I'd start there. Honey, I appreciate you taking a shower. I said, there are men who don't. <laughs> I've never met a man. I've never met a woman. You couldn't find something good to say about them. And if this is their love language, if you don't give positive words to them, affirm them about something, it can be their personality, it can be the way they look, it can be something they did, anything that you're affirming them in a positive way with words. You can speak the words, you can write the words, but it's using words to affirm the other person. It's so interesting and insightful because I wear the same uniform every day. I have probably 70 shirts that look like this with different colors and patterns and five pair of pants all look the same shades of gray. And so for, you know, 20 years, I come down the stairs every morning in the same uniform, just different color. And occasionally my wife will say, well, you look so nice today. And, I, and it, it totally changes my morning mindset because I'm thinking, but I wore the same thing the last 13 years you've known me, just different colors and variations. And it, it does put a bit of a spring in my step and give me some confidence to take on the day. It took her nothing. She was genuine, though, because she, she says it once every month. But when she does say it, it definitely changes my mindset. Number one, language, words of affirmation. By the way, before I go on, Dr. Chapman, did you order them in hierarchy? Did you order them by popularity or by need? Was there any reason why one is one and five is five? No, no, there is no particular emphasis on the order. Great. A man can have either one, any one of these, a woman can have any one of these, and one does not stand out, you know, uh, very much from the others. They vary between 18 and 22% up and down. I see. Uh, so, no, they're all important. Pretty common. Five love languages. The first is word of, words of affirmation. Number two is acts of service. Riff on that. Doing something for the other person that you know they would like for you to do. In a marriage, this would be such things as cooking meals, washing dishes, vacuuming floors, uh, washing the car, running it through a car wash, <laughs> mowing grass, walking the dog, changing the baby's diaper. I mean, on and on and on we go. Uh, there's an old saying, actions speak louder than words. If this is their love language, that is true. It's not true for everyone. But for these people, actions will speak louder than words. Uh, I remember, for example, in our marriage, in the middle of everything, you know, when we first got married, I still was in love with her. And I gave her positive words and told her all these things. And especially told her I loved her. I'm just so, I'm so glad I married you. I love you, love you, love you. And one night she said, you keep on saying I love you. If you love me, why don't you help me? I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you don't ever offer to wash the dishes or vacuum the floors or clean the toilet or anything. And, you know, I was thinking, Scott, to be honest, I didn't say this, but I was thinking, what are you talking about, woman? My mama did that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but looking back on that, she was telling me her love language. I knew nothing about love language, but she was telling me how to love her effectively. My words were not getting through to her emotionally. So acts of service is uh, the love language of many people. Talk about number three, receiving gifts. It's universal to give and receive gifts as an expression of love. As you mentioned, I have an academic background before I studied counseling in cultural anthropology. We have never discovered a culture where gift giving is not an expression of love. 
It's universal to give gifts. The gift says, they were thinking about me. Look what they got from me. And the gift does not have to be expensive. We've always said it's the thought that counts. But it's not the thought left in your head. It's the gift that came out of the thought in your head, okay? Uh, and this is why it's important to find out what kind of gifts are meaningful to them. You know, even in this, you may give them a gift that's not something that's meaningful to them. So uh, giving gifts is, uh, is another love language. Dr. Chapman, what do you say to the people already listening to this podcast or watching us and they're saying, oh, yeah, 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 my love language is this and I know my wife's is gifts, which may or may not be the actual truth. How does someone discover their own love language accurately? Well, I'll give you three informal ways. Number one, how do you most often express love and appreciation to other people? If you're always giving other people affirming words, that's very likely your language. If you're always giving people gifts, it's likely your language. I say likely, it's not always true. So that's a clue. Secondly, what do you complain about most often? The complaint reveals the love language. The wife who says to the husband, I just feel like we don't spend time together anymore. She's complaining about quality time, which we haven't discussed yet. She's complaining about quality time. Uh, if you say to your spouse uh, periodically, I can't ever please you, you're complaining that you don't get affirming words. All you're hearing are negative words. So what do you complain about? And thirdly, what do you request most often? The request reveals the love language. You put those three things together, you can pretty well figure out your love language. And if you observe those in your spouse or anyone else, you can pretty well figure out what their primary love language is. Words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving gifts, and then four, quality time. Quality time is giving the other person your undivided attention. I do not mean husband and wife sitting on the couch watching TV. Someone else has your attention. I'm talking about sitting there with the TV off, computer down. We're not answering the phone. We're giving each other our undivided attention. We're sharing our thoughts, our feelings, and sharing life together. And I don't mean you have to always be sitting down talking. You can take a walk and talk or go out to eat and talk. You know, we've all seen this in the restaurant. They're out together, but each of them have their phone out, <laughs> answering their text messages. That's not quality time. And you don't always have to be talking. You could be doing a project together that one of you really likes doing, and you want the other one to be there with you and give your full attention, whether it's planting a flower garden in the front yard or, or whether it's going to some to the symphony, let's say. And maybe you're not a symphony person, but they are. And they would really like for you to go with them and give your full attention to what's going on that night. Experience this with them. So giving them quality time, your undivided attention. I used to think that my love language was words of affirmation. I think it primarily is. But as you were talking, I was thinking of a very similar situation. My wife, Stephanie, and I have been married for about 14 years now. Not quite 13 years, 13 years. We have three sons that are five. No, we have three, three sons that are eight, 10, and 12. Sorry. Three boys will get your brain a little bit foggy, sir. <laughs> and uh, I like to garden. I don't want to mow an acre of lawn, been there, done that, sold that home. But I like to putter and plant and weed and, you know, things that take like 90 minutes, not nine hours. And my wife does not. But just last week, my wife faked gardening with me for about 15 minutes. And I think it might have been the best 15 minutes of the last year. I just liked her. 
I liked the idea of thinking that she was enjoying it. And I kind of got this warm feeling, remembering it a week ago, of her like, you know, taking plants out and handing them to me. I'm sure I was probably a little bit too um, instructive on how I wanted the plants handed to me. But to your point, I just enjoyed her being around, enjoying yeah. something that I enjoyed doing. Yeah. Let's talk about the fifth love language, physical touch. And before you go there, something you said to me three years ago has uh, never left me. And that is that often men will think that physical touch is their love language. And you have a question that you typically ask men to determine whether or not this is their love language or not. I remember exactly what it was. And it wasn't about sex. It was about something else. Talk to us about identifying if physical touch is, in fact, your love language. Yeah, I think many men do equate physical touch with the sexual part of marriage. So what I ask is, do non-sexual touches make you feel loved? And first of all, they look at me like a deer in the headlights and say, are there non-sexual touches? <laughs> I say, well, let's say the two of you get out of the car, you're walking into a shopping mall, and as you walk through the door, your wife reaches over and holds your hand. Does that make you feel loved? And if he says, no, that kind of irritates me. I said, okay, let's say that she's pouring a cup of coffee and she puts her hand on your shoulder. Does that make you feel loved? And if he says, not really. I said, physical touch is not your love language. You like sex, I understand that, <laughs> but it's not your love language, okay? So don't assume that all men have physical touch is their language. No, it's not true. Doctor, how do people develop their love language? Like, for example, I was raised in a very healthy middle-class family in Central Florida in the 70s, where kind of safety was the number one value, security, consistency. We were loved, but it was shared in different ways. I don't recall really touching my parents very much at all. My father hardly ever. I'm not sure physical touch is, in fact, my love language. How, how Do our love languages develop because of how we were raised, nurture versus nature, uh, and your own combination of being a therapist and a cultural anthropologist, how early on in life do our love languages kind of cement? Well, let me say, first of all, I don't, I don't know the answer to your bigger question. Yeah. <laughs> Is it nature? Is it nurture? I do know this. You can discover a child's primary love language, at least by the time they're four years old by simply observing their behavior. How do they relate to you and other people? My son, for example, his love language is physical touch. When he was that age, I would come home from work. He would run to the door, grab my legs and climb on me. He's touching me because he wants to be touched. My daughter never did that. At that age, she would say, Daddy, come into my room. I want to show you something. She wanted quality time. So it's there rather early in life. So I don't know, nature or nurture, but I do know it's there rather early. Doctor, any unscientific or at least uh, anecdotal correlations in your many decades as a family marriage therapist where you find couples that are able to persevere and endure tough times in marriage versus those who don't because they were able to match their love languages earlier on, or perhaps you had a couple who was you know, splitting for legitimate reasons and they got better in touch. What, what, what are some stories you might share that people could relate to that might even change their relationship tonight when they, after they finish listening or watching this podcast, they re-enter their home? 
You know, Scott, when I do marriage conferences around the country, I do a Saturday event. Every time I do a marriage conference, I will have half a dozen, sometimes more, come up to me throughout the day and say, we just wanted to share with you that your book saved our marriage. We were that close to divorce and someone gave us your book and we read it and the lights came on and we realized how we'd been missing each other. And we took the quiz in the back of the book. We learned how to each other's language and we began to speak it and the love tank began to fill up. It literally saved our marriage. I think because this is one of our deepest emotional needs, that it is often the difference between a healthy marriage and an unhealthy marriage. Uh, because if you don't meet this need, then whatever other problems you have are just kind of added to the frustration of not feeling loved. And so many people bail out because they don't feel loved. They don't feel it's going to get any better. They've argued about everything. But if they can be get this concept and discover each other's language and begin to speak it, over a period of time, everything begins to change because when you're loving each other in each other's language, then the things that other things that have been problems for you, it's much easier to listen to them, try to understand each other, try to find solutions to those things. So yes, I think it's a huge factor in whether we have long-term healthy marriages or whether we don't. Dr. White, in the back of your book, you have two profiles, one for him and one for her, that help people better understand their love language. Speak to that, if you will, for a moment. Yeah, it gives you a choice between two things, you know, uh, and what, which would you choose, and you make those choices, and then it tells you what your number one love language is, what your secondary love language is, and the others, uh, including the one that's least important to you, which is also good information, because if your spouse is number five, is something that that you or let me say if there if there's his number if they're number one their primary language is something that's your number five you got a learning curve you know because it, it's not you you can hardly understand why that would make someone feel loved but if they tell you that's their language then you, you better get to learning how to speak it the good news is even if you did not receive these love languages growing up or one or two of them and now you're married to someone and, and that's their primary. Yeah, you can learn these as an adult. I remember the man who said, a husband who said to me, he said, Gary, my wife and I read your book and we took the quiz and her love language is words of affirmation. He said, Dr. Chapman, I, I don't know how to do that. He said, I never received positive words growing up. All I was ever told was I wasn't gonna mount anything. He said, I don't know how to do that. I said, well, let me just ask you a question. I said, can you tell me three things that you appreciate about your wife? He said, well, she's a good cook and she's a good school teacher and she's a good mother. I said, okay. I wrote out a sentence or two out beside each of those, like on the, on the cooking, something like, you know, honey, I haven't told you this, but I really appreciate all the meals you cook. You're, you're such a good cook. Yeah, just two or three sentences after each one. I said, now here's your assignment. You go home, stand in front of a mirror in a room by yourself and read these out loud twice a day for the next week. So you hear yourself saying these things. He came back. I said, now, can you say them without looking at your notes? And he did. He stumbled on one or two of them, but he made it. I said, now here's your assignment. The next three weeks, you give her one of these compliments 
one a week. And let's just see what happens. Well, he came back. I said, did you do it? He said, yeah, I did it. I said, how'd she respond? He said, well, on the third week, she said, what's going on with you? I've never heard you give me so many compliments. <laughs> I said, what did you say? He said, well, I just told her, honey, I'm trying to learn how to express my love to you because I love you so much. She said, that is so sweet. <laughs> so you can learn any one of these, even if you didn't receive them as a child. Sounds like that came from the 1950s, but I'm guessing that was a recent conversation with many <laughs> men in relationships. Uh, Dr. Chapman, I want to end our conversation with the expansion of the uh, adoption of this concept, these concepts, because it isn't just for relationships that are marital in nature. As I've been listening to you and reading the book again for our interview today, I realize that as a father, I need to do a better job of uncovering, discovering, validating the love languages of our three children. I mentioned I have three sons. I think our oldest son, who's 12, I believe his love language is quality time, as evidenced by his behavior. Our middle son, who's 10, I think his love language is words of affirmation, probably because I don't give it to him enough. But I really don't know, I have any idea, what the love language is of our youngest child. He loves to snuggle. Our middle one kind of doesn't. The older one can kind of take it or leave it. How, as a parent, do you uncover a child's love language when we know how important it is? You said by four, it's kind of obvious, but what if it's not obvious? Are there some questions you can ask your children who may not be able to articulate it as well as your adult, hopefully mature spouse? Yeah, I think, uh, first of all, let me say this and let me make it clear. I am not suggesting that you only speak a child's primary love language. Mm -hmm. A child needs to learn how to receive love in all five languages and learn how to speak love in all five languages. That's the healthiest adult. But you give heavy doses of the primary. If you don't give heavy doses of the primary, they will not feel love, even though you're speaking some of the others. So I think you, you concentrate on the on, on one that you think is the primary. Now, having said that, I think with a young child, again, you give all five. And what you will begin to see at a, at a certain stage, I said at least by four years of age, when you're giving them one of these five, you're going to see a different response than you do for the others. You know, you can kind of also do a little experiment. Take five weeks and one week, the husband and wife, if you're both in the home, you speak one of these languages just over and over and over and over again to them. And then that you, you, you go overboard on each of them once a week for one week. On the week that you hit their primary language, you will see a difference in their response and the, and, and the way they, they respond to you. So that's kind of a little experiment you can do. You can also do this. Give the child choices between two things. For example, uh, would you like for you and I to take a walk in the woods or walk in, around the street? Or would you like for me to write you a poem about how wonderful you are? One is words, one is quality time. They make a choice. And you keep a record of what they choose between these things, and you'll begin to see that one of them will stand out more than the others. So that's kind of an informal way to do it as well. You have a fun job because you've written a lot of new books based on this concept, including the five love languages for children, another book called One More Try, another one when sorry isn't enough, Loving your spouse when you feel like walking away. Things I wish I'd known before we got married. And with uh, Dr. Paul White, 
You wrote a book called Rising Above a Toxic Workplace, and I believe with Dr. White, you wrote a book about the five love languages in the workplace. Would you finish us off and talk about that book you wrote around, I think it was around the five um, uh, appreciations or such. Talk about the adaptation organizationally of this book. Yeah, the five languages of appreciation in the workplace. Yes. We simply took the love languages to work, but we call them appreciation because family relationships are different from work relationships. But it's meeting that same deep need, and that is the need to feel that I am valued as a person. I'm not simply a cog in the business machine. I'm valued as a person. And Dr. White had had 20 years' experience working with business leaders before we teamed up and wrote that book. And uh, I told him, I said, we've got to do some research before we write it. So he, for two or three years, would go into a business, all kinds of businesses. He would give them a job satisfaction test, the employees. Then he would share the concept that we each have different appreciation languages. And they would take a quiz, and everybody would then in their group know the primary appreciation language of all the others and the secondary and the one that's least important. And then about every six weeks, he would just remind them to keep it on the front burner. A year later, he gave another job satisfaction test. And in every case, it was statistically improved. So we do believe this has tremendous implications for the business world. And if you want to retain employees, they need to feel appreciated. What we found is that a high percentage of people who have jobs say they feel little to no appreciation coming from the people with whom they work. 64% of the people who leave a job and go to another job say they left primarily because they didn't feel appreciated. So this has huge implications in the business setting, and we've had a great response to that. For those of you who are working on your own marriage or relationships in the adult world or with children as well, Pick up a copy of this book. It is a game changer. It's a great conversation to have with your spouse. Your language will literally change after learning what the five love languages are. Words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, and physical touch. The book is The Five Love Languages, The Secret to Love That Last. Dr. Gary Chapman, thank you for joining us today on Leadership. Well, thank you, Scott. It's great to be with you. Keep great, up the good work. Great to have you. Same to you, sir. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. <laughs>